0: Hello. Welcome to the podcast, Story and Fiction, produced by StoryAndLiteraryFiction.com. This is Episode 3 of Tour of Duty, read by the author, William H. Coles. Thanks for listening. Part 3. Chapter 14. The Scheme. 1964. Emily. In Boston, for more than two years, Emily Lodge's life with husband Parker became a vacuum of caring, and, in quiet moments, she felt trapped in a lonely, depressive existence. Parker's privileged existence left him with no need to be liked by the elite who had accepted him from birth, and he socialized with a few old cronies without her. He rarely talked to her or even looked at her. She felt transparent in his presence. One day in May, Parker carelessly left an itinerary for Paris on the table in the foyer in Boston. Emily found it by chance, and the next day she asked if she could go with him. No, he replied, and don't bring it up again. In her bedroom, she stripped to bra and panties and slumped into bed. She sulked for hours with a blanket covering her head, her mind stagnant with wounded dignity. As night approached, Parker entered the house, and her determination to go to Paris drove her to action. She opened the door to Parker's private study. "'I want to go,' she said. "'I deserve to go.' He looked bemused. "'Not possible,' he said, chuckling straight-faced. He found her boldness absurd. She cursed him, called him a son of a bitch. He rose from his chair, and before he was at full stance, she slammed her fist on his desk, intentionally knocking over fresh flowers in a crystal vase that fell splintering and scattering over the hardwood flooring near his feet. He said nothing, his face devoid of emotion. She stopped to regain control of her thoughts, gasping with short, quick breaths. He sighed, You're pitiful. I'm your wife. Treat me with the respect I deserve. You're not who you think you are, my dear. I'm more than you think I am. It's business. I will be totally occupied. I want to get out of this shithole, pretend for a few days that I exist. His face was impassive. I would not have time for you. You've never had time for me, for Christ's sake. What's the harm in taking your invisible wife on a trip? Get out, he said. She stood her ground. He walked her, grabbed her arm, and forced her out of the office door. She went to the foyer. His flight itinerary was still there. On the kitchen phone, she booked the same flight as his on the same day. She wrote down the details. She went to his office and threw her itinerary on the desk. I'm going, she said. He gave a short laugh. It's not funny. "'You're out of line, woman. "'I'm at the head of the line, and don't you ever forget it.' "'He uttered a cruel, deriding laugh. "'She flashed him a stiff middle finger. "'Emily could not suppress a sliver of optimism "'for an enjoyable transatlantic trip with Parker, "'but she was denied a requested upgrade, "'and Parker lounged in first class. "'She was in tourist, and when they arrived in Paris,' Parker was indifferent to her, and she trailed behind him to his hired private car. At arrival at the Hotel de Crillon in their two-bedroom suite, ever hopeful, Emily asked if they could tour France together. No, he snapped. I'll go by myself. I don't care what you do. I can't drive around France by myself. Jesus Christ, Parker said, exasperated. With only partially concealed anger, he arranged by phone for a car and a driver for Emily for a month. "'Please come with me,' Emily asked quietly. "'I've seen enough of France for a lifetime,' he said. She felt diminished again. Unable to shed the ignominy of traveling alone, for two days she stayed in the suite and came close to panic from claustrophobia that she'd never experienced before. On the third day, she booked a bus tour in Paris through the hotel's travel desk. But in the early afternoon, bored and uninterested, she left the tour and took a taxi back to the hotel. On the fourth day, she sought out her driver and demanded he map out routes to castles. He suggested the Andre department. That afternoon, she visited Chateau de Valencé before arriving in Orléans and listened to the history of Joan of Arc. She was not impressed. That night, at dinner alone in her hotel, she looked at maps in her Michelin guide for Chateauroux, where she knew Miles was stationed. By early afternoon, she'd registered in a hotel in Chateauroux and went to the base hospital before 1600 hours. She pushed her way to the receptionist window, squeezing in front of a young woman and her aged parent at the head of the line and asked for Dr. Miles Ballard. "'Are you a patient?' the receptionist asked. Oh, no, I knew him at Boston. Your name, please? Emily Lodge, she said. I'll tell him you're here, the receptionist said without smiling. She wrote Emily's name on a notepad and tore off the top sheet to take to Dr. Ballard. Have a seat, she said. Emily took a seat. A woman with two small children entered the waiting room, and a uniformed officer stood to meet them. He seemed pleased to see them. Miles entered the waiting room five minutes later, his face impassive until he smiled hesitantly with recognition. Emily said, What's brought you to Chateau? Emily gripped his extended hand with determination. Parker had business in Paris. I came to explore France. She couldn't decipher his emotions. At least he didn't seem displeased. "'I'm between patients,' Miles said. "'Do you have time for a quick cup of coffee?' "'He nodded. "'In the hospital cafeteria, Miles ordered coffees and croissants, "'and they took seats at a small round table for two. "'Where have you been so far?' Miles asked. "'Paris,' she finally said, "'unable to remember the names of the castles she'd been to that day. "'Well, that's a good start. There's so much to see.' "'Where are you going next?' "'Nothing planned. "'I decide day by day.' "'And how's the family?' Miles asked. "'Unchanged,' she said. "'Do you get to see them often?' "'I do visit Maine when the weather's good. "'Do you remember, Mother?' "'Not often,' Miles said with a weak smile "'that he regretted him when she frowned. "'Why do you ask?' "'It's okay.' "'I wish she'd never said those things about you "'when you were in the attic. "'It's water under the bridge, Em. "'She wanted what was best for you. "'But it wasn't best for me,' she thought. "'I'm glad to see you,' she said. "'Miles asked her about her work. "'I quit my job at Smith last year,' she said. "'It was beneath my deserved status "'as old Boston elite,' she thought. "'Don't you miss it?' he asked. She hesitated. I never liked recruiting students for a mediocre college. What are you doing now? Oh, I keep busy. I'm assistant to the secretary of the junior league. A nurse in a uniform came to the cafeteria door and waited for Miles to follow. Look, I'd love to hear more, but I've got to get back to patients, Miles said. Why don't you join me for dinner? I'd like you to meet two friends. "'We're going to try a restaurant near Isidon.' "'The invitation surprised her, and her spirits soared. "'She was sure she had captured his interest again. "'What's the address?' she said. "'I have a car and driver. "'I will pick you up at your hotel.' "'Oh, good,' she said. "'But she really would have rather been with him alone.' "'Oliver drove the Jaguar sedan.' Miles introduced Oliver and Ingrid as he assisted Emily into the back seat and joined her. She talked of her life in the States. "'Oh, there are lots of benefits,' she said. Parker belongs to the Knickerbocker Club for exclusivity, and he spends most of his time at the New York Yacht Club. Thirty years ago he raced in the America's Cup, but he's too old now. Five of his six aging crew buddies are still alive and stay at the Yacht Club.' Do you go with him to New York, Ola Oh, I'm way too busy. Parker donated another $100,000 for me to serve on the board of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. It's a prominent position, and having Parker, Batten's wife as a member, gives them prestige they all crave, and a boost to fundraising. They arrived at Des Petite Pois in less than an hour. Throughout the meal... Emily told of her family's house on Beacon Hill that had been in the family for four generations, or maybe five, she couldn't remember, and how her father, when he semi-retired, had leased the house to the lieutenant governor, and now they stayed in their house in Maine year-round. Yes, her father had been a college professor, she answered when asked. As they finished dessert, Ingrid asked, "'Do you like France?' "'It's quaint,' Emily said. "'Are you here tomorrow?' "'I can be, yes. "'If you would like, we could visit the Chateau de Montsoreau. "'Is it a long trip?' Emily asked confidently, now that she had her say and they seemed impressed. "'A few hours,' Ingrid said. "'We'll take my private car.' "'After dinner, Oliver and Ingrid dropped Emily off at her hotel.' and Miles at his brass suit duplex on their way home. Alone again, Oliver asked Ingrid. What possessed you to invite her to go with you tomorrow? She's impossible. I think she's trouble for Miles, Ollie. I want to know why she's here. Well, there's nothing you can do. I'm not sure, but still we should try. But what if Miles is still in love with her? Oh, that would be terrible. I hope he's not. Don't mess with squirrely love, Ingrid. You're not a Shadkin. Keep out of it. Let them work it out. Miles is still vulnerable, Ollie. His story of turning him down moved me. Don't get into it. If she entices him in any way and things go wrong, Miles will suffer, and if we do nothing, we'll be to blame. Not at all. Emily Lodge can hurt him again. He doesn't deserve to relive pain by her. What if we misjudged her, Oliver said? What if she might be a shriveled, lonely soul in all the me and the fake kindness and the caring without an ounce of remorse for what she did? She's got an agenda, Ollie. I don't think it's love. I think she's trying to erase her loneliness by snagging Miles again. It doesn't sound like she planned to come to Chateauroux, Oliver said. At best, it was unconscious at first. But I really think she's here to see Miles, not the local chateaus or cathedrals. Oliver nodded in agreement. Okay. Just don't deny him a true chance at happiness, Ingrid. He'll never find happiness with her. I'll find out what she's here about tomorrow. "'to be sure of our motivations. "'I won't let our friend be hurt. "'I think of Miles, "'and I have missed him,' she thought. "'But she could never speak her mind, "'knowing Oliver could never accept the truth "'and would not suffice to untangle herself from Oliver, "'a man who she no longer loved. "'The next day, the sky was clear "'with a slight chill in the air. Ingrid thought Emily's hired Bentley sedan ostentatious as she rode with Emily in the back seat, imitating English royalty. The driver kept the windows up continuously, adjusting the heating system to comfortable temperatures. But Ingrid missed the leisure of fresh country air. "'Do you really like being in France?' Emily asked again. "'I do,' Ingrid said. "'I think you'll like it. Do you enjoy traveling alone?' "'Oh, no!' I would never travel alone on purpose, Emily said, with a rare divulgence of the truth. Parker doesn't travel for leisure, and he won't take me on business trips. This is an exception, I insisted. They remained silent as the driver passed a truck on the narrow, unmarked country road. The drivers are horrid around here, Emily said, when they were safely past the truck. The sliding glass panel between the driver and the back seat was open, and Ingrid knew he could hear everything they said. Had he taken offense? Does your husband like France, Ingrid said. There's little Parker likes, Emily admitted. To be frank, he comes to shoot birds and wild boar with friends, although I don't think he's ever bagged a boar. He's a shitty husband. He doesn't care for me. He married me because he, wrongly, thought my father still had his inherited fortune, and he needed a young wife for social events and political advantage. I'm so sorry, Ingrid said sincerely. I have no need for sympathy, Emily snapped. It doesn't sound like a rewarding life, Ingrid said, annoyed by Emily's sharp reply. Being on the board of the museum is my duty to Parker. "'but it uses up my time. "'I know nothing about art. "'But Parker is determined his wife "'will be regarded as the best fundraiser on the board, "'so we make a substantial contribution "'every year in my name.' "'I've enjoyed the museum,' Ingrid said. "'I've been there twice.' "'Well, it's famous. "'But drab outmoded art, don't you think? "'Do you really like it?' "'I do.' What well, do you paint? Yes, whenever possible. Well, I admire your industry. I think being an artist is menial work with essentially no reward, Emily said. I don't agree, Ingrid said. Great art has its rewards to the artist and the beholder. I admire how the French treasure art and beauty in their culture. It's not just the visual arts, either. It's music and dance— "'culture, architecture, language. "'The value of art is instinctive for them. "'I can't remember most works of art. "'They just all blur together,' Emily said. "'They entered a town. "'From the front seat, "'the driver pointed out a small 12th-century cathedral "'where the priest was a distant cousin on his mother's side. "'They rode in silence for a few more minutes.' "'Does Miles have friends?' Emily asked. "'Oh, it's one of the advantages of being a doctor in the military, Emily. "'Almost everyone is healthy and doctors have time "'they would never have in practice in the States, "'so they do make friends.' "'But is he in a relationship?' Emily asked. "'Ingrid remained silent. "'Well, is he?' Emily persisted. "'I'm not sure.' "'Ingrid avoided that Miles rarely dated.' Something happened in the past, and I think he's afraid it could happen again, Ingrid said. Emily hesitated, her jaw clenched, her face hardened. You don't know, do you? Ingrid deliberately looked out a window. He told you, didn't he, that nerd? It's not important, Ingrid said. He told you about our engagement. Ingrid remained silent. What did he say? mentioned it, Emily. That's all. And you think I was unjust, don't you? You think I was wrong. I didn't have choices, you know. My parents, his past, did he tell you about that? I don't make judgments, Ingrid said. He comes from no status parents. Ingrid didn't respond. Emily took time to control her thoughts, and she finally said... Would Miles be open to a relationship? Ingrid delayed her answer. I think he's satisfied with life as it is now, she said. But is he happy with someone? He seems happy with almost everyone he knows. Damn it, Ingrid, he must be lonely. He works hard, he's a dedicated physician, he doesn't have time to be lonely. Working to excess, that's exactly what I would expect. It's what my mother told me about him. He's a victim of his profession. That's not Miles, Ingrid said. He's not a victim. He looks to the future. He's content, and I think he covets discovery. I made him content once, Emily said. I could do it again. You're married now. To the wrong man, God damn it. Ingrid mentally shrugged and stayed quiet. I need to talk to him again, Emily said. Just find a way to get us together again. That's all I ask. I'm sorry, Emily, I can't do that. You won't do that, and you told me you're his friend. Why not? It's not my place. Damn it, there's nothing wrong. I just want to talk to him. Ingrid did not respond. "'Look, if it's money you want, I'll pay. "'Anything you ask,' Emily said. "'Ingrid exhaled. "'She waited. "'That's insulting,' she finally said. "'What's insulting?' "'Offering money,' Ingrid said. "'Don't be so condescending. "'I'm offended. "'Money's what you people want.' "'Emily reached into her purse "'and took out a small stack of bills.' "'Take this. I'll give you much more later if you do it.' "'Ingrid shook her head. "'You're impossible,' she said. "'You'll regret it,' Emily said. "'I don't think so. "'It's so little to ask. "'It's more than I will do.' "'Emily's breathing increased. "'Jew slut,' she said. "'Ingrid couldn't look at Emily. "'She needed to be far away. "'She leaned forward to the driver.' Turn around, she said. That's not for you to tell him, Emily said. He's my driver. But the driver had already turned into a side road to make a three point turn. Damn it, go on, Emily shouted at the driver. Go to the chateau, whatever it is. Yes, madam. In seconds, he completed his turn and was headed back on the route to Chateauroux instead of the chateau de Montsoreau. After we take the lady back, He said. Silence pervaded on the return to Chateauroux. Ingrid left the car without a farewell. Emily went to the hospital, but Miles had left. The receptionist did not know where he was. She knows, but she won't tell me, she thought angrily. He's a doctor. How in the hell do you find him when you need him? She asked sharply. He's not on call, the receptionist said. I'm a friend from the States, not a patient. Now where is he? The receptionist was silent for a moment. Probably at the officer's club. What's the number? I'll try to reach him for you. She was back in thirty seconds. He's not there. Will he be in the hospital tomorrow? Yes, ma'am. Emily left without a thank you. The military frustrated her. That evening... Oliver returned home from the hospital to Brasso at half-past eight. Ingrid was in the spare room on a high stool at a slanted drawing-board. She was drawing caricatures of friends from photos, celebrities from magazines, and famous historic figures from statues. A good day she asked as Oliver entered and gave her a kiss on the cheek. Hideous one of Springer's patients committed suicide where In her hospital room. That's unbelievable. No precautions. There is a suicide protocol, but typical of the military, it was not in place and not used. And Springer never spends time enough with patients to know what they're feeling. She stockpiled drugs she stole from the nurses until she had enough to kill herself. I hope it never happens to one of your patients. Always the chance. How was the trip with that fiend of a woman? For a while, she acted casually coincidental, but she's here to snare Miles. Did you find a single shard of virtue? Not really. She called me a Jew slut when I wouldn't take money to arrange a contact with Miles. What a bitch. Has she left? She's determined. She'll hound Miles. He needs to tell her to go away. He's too nice. "'She'll destroy his capacity to love,' Ingrid said. "'No, Ingrid,' Oliver said, irritated. "'Stay out of it. "'No matter what you do, good or bad, "'Miles will never feel the same about you or me if you meddle. "'And he's a good friend.' "'Oliver's tone of voice disturbed her. "'But now was not the time to object. "'She'd do what needed to be done on her own.' "'The next day, Emily awoke before six bathed, dressed, and ate the complimentary hotel breakfast, coffee, and croissant with quince jam. She was determined to go to the base to find Ingrid Stern. She'd slept poorly, believing, by offending Ingrid, that she had squandered an opportunity to achieve reconciliation with Miles. Now she was resolute to succeed. At the base hospital, the receptionist gave her the Stern's address in bressou There was no answer at the door. She walked back to her hired car. A woman stepped out of a neighboring house and waved. Can I help you? She called out. I'm looking for Ingrid Stern. Well, she won't be home for a while. She teaches a yoga class for wives at the gym on Mondays. The driver found the gymnasium easily, and Emily walked in through the door to the basketball court. Twenty-one women on individual mats were spaced out on the floor in three rows. Ingrid led the instruction from a mat in front of the students. Emily sat on the first tier of wooden bleachers to wait for the session to end. When the women dispersed, Emily walked quickly and directly to Ingrid, who was rolling up her mat. "'I don't want to see you,' Ingrid said. "'Please. I'm serious, Emily. I'm so sorry, Ingrid.' I wish I'd never said those things. That wasn't who I am. Having listened to Emily's relentless, acrimonious tone of voice now for two days, Ingrid ignored her false contrition. Emily's woeful gaze looked down in a way. I just want to talk for a few minutes. Ingrid hesitated. She wasn't rude by nature, and she waited for Emily to finish. I want advice, Emily said. You're the only person I know in France for more than just a greeting. Just a few minutes, could we sit on the bleachers? Ingrid shrugged, eager to be rid of her. They sat separated by two feet and looking straight ahead, as if neither at the moment wanted to discover the other's thoughts. Finally, Emily turned her head to look at Ingrid. Last night I was alone in the hotel and I hated myself. I'm not a shrew, Ingrid. "'Maybe I've become one, but that's not the real me.' "'Why do you need me?' Ingrid asked. "'I'd like to spend some time in France.' "'I knew it,' Ingrid thought. "'I would like to talk to Miles again, "'let him know how I feel, ask him to forgive the past.' "'Why did you turn him down, Emily?' "'He thinks he wasn't up to your family's standards, "'your social standards.' That was my mother, mainly. I wasn't mature enough to know how vicious she can be, and she denied me to love him. She thought he'd never satisfy me, thought life required me to find a companion with the wherewithal to marry, survive, and procreate in Boston. And that was stupid, of course. I had no thoughts of what marriage would be like or what I wanted the husband to be, and I was impatient. And afraid? Ingrid asked. Emily hesitated. That was part of it. Of what? Commitment? Emily paused. I I don't know. Maybe you don't know how to love, Ingrid thought. And why do you want him now? Ingrid said. I think he really loved me, Ingrid, probably because he didn't know who I was at the time. I've changed. I didn't know it then, but living with a husband like Parker has made me understand how precious Miles' feelings were. Emily was a liar, and Ingrid didn't want to hear about her feelings. Emily could never love Miles with the devotion he deserved. Any possible feelings for others were directed inwardly to herself. I want to spend time here in France knowing who Miles has become. He doesn't want to see you. "'You can't know that, and I can make him content again. "'Do you love him, Emily? "'I do, even though you haven't seen him since you've been married. "'I've been alone at times, sustained by what Miles was to me, "'and I didn't recognize. "'Well, underneath his back-to-business exterior, "'he's a kind person,' Ingrid said. "'He's sensitive and he cares for others.' And I don't think he'll allow himself to be hurt again. Emily teared. Well, that isn't real, Ingrid thought. She said, You're married, Emily. Emily cried for a few seconds and wiped the tears from her face with her coat sleeve. It's not marriage, Ingrid. It's never been consummated. And Parker spends his time with his men and friends. He's... he's gay, Ingrid realized. "'and she's unwillingly chased. "'Would you help me get close to Miles?' Emily continued. "'I can learn about France. "'He might spend time with me.' "'Ingrid sighed. "'I've no desire to be involved.' "'The next morning, Ingrid walked to Miles' brass suit duplex "'at half-past seven. "'Miles was in his pajamas. "'Relax,' she said, knowing his propriety.' He invited her to step inside, out of the cool morning. I think you should talk to Emily, she said, as they were facing each other in the hall. Why? Do you still care for her? "Uh, Never. Can you tell me honestly that you felt nothing when you saw her at the hospital for the first time in more than two years? Miles frowned. For a few seconds, maybe. I was surprised to see her. "'and there was a brief moment of pleasure "'from memories of our times together. "'But after that, nothing? "'Nothing. "'Be honest. "'If you have the faintest love for her still,' "'ingard said, admit it and tell her. "'It's important. "'She wants to stay here to recapture the old times. "'It would be a disaster for you,' England thought. "'And I hope you see that. "'I don't want that. "'It's past.' She can never be in my future. Well, then you must tell her. I don't like her, but she's so desperately lonely. She's searching for someone who cares. And to continue to believe she can regain it with you could ruin her. She has to let go of the dream, face the nightmare disaster of her marriage and go on with her life. She's going to find you very soon. Be ready to treat her with sympathy and caring. But free her to get her life on track for a realistic future. Be firm and convincing. Tell her your feelings, one way or another. I don't know her anything, Miles said. Just tell her. It's a critical gesture to help another human being. The next day, before dawn, Emily demanded her driver park in front of Miles' duplex. After a few minutes. When a light went on in the house, she sprinted up and rapped relentlessly with a brass knocker. Miles opened the door, tying the sash of his wool robe around his waist. He had a sleepless night. Ingrid's words had made him anxious. He looks exhausted, Emily thought. "'Hear me out,' she said. "'I don't have time, Emily.' "'Let me in,' she entered before he could speak." She positioned herself a few feet away from him. She felt the need to embrace him, to establish intimacy through contact, but she hesitated, afraid of what he might say or do. I'm sorry for the past, Miles. I wish we could start again. All night he'd struggled with this confrontation. He did miss the times when he adored this woman, dreamed of spending his life with her, and he hadn't been entirely truthful with Ingrid. But now, looking at Emily, he felt nothing for her, and he could never forgive her. She had to move on with life without him. Don't say anything more, Emily. Don't say that. We will never have a life together. How can you be so cruel, she cried. Damn it, you still care for me. I don't, Emily, and I never will. He was firm. He rejected every inclination that he might ever want to be with her again. I love you, she said. You can't ignore that. You're all about yourself now. You'll never find anyone like me. Never. You don't deserve me. You're blind to what I could do for you. She flushed, breathing deeply and close to shouting, her voice harsh and ratty. Miles held the urge to respond, to defend himself. He was not at fault. She was inadequate in so many ways. He opened the door. Leave, Emily. Don't you dare throw me out, she yelled. Just leave. You're not welcome. I hate you, you arrogant, selfish son of a bitch. He reached for her elbow to usher her out the door. Don't you dare touch me. She started moving out onto the path. When she hesitated and turned slightly to look back, Miles was closing the door. Indignant and angry, she walked to the car. Paris, she said to the driver. She went straight to her hotel. Parker was not there. She made arrangements for a flight, packed, placed a note on the hotel bed, and left early the next morning for home. Angry, sad, lonely and shaken at the prospect of her uncertain future. Chapter 15 D-Day June 1964 Alice Even after more than two years in France, Alice avoided dinners at the general and his wife's whenever possible. She still didn't like her mother's company or her cooking. But this was a Sunday evening, and her mother seemed desperate to have a family gathering with two guests, a base chaplain and his wife. Even with three family and two guests around a rectangular dining table headed by the general, the conversation was plagued with long pauses, as each of them stared intermittently with their plates and arranged their ground beef, mashed potatoes, and peas into individual unique piles as justification for not looking up at others. Are you going to the D-Day Commemorative on June 6th? And Alice asked the General. We're going, the chaplain offered, when the general paused in a response a few seconds too long. Of course I'm going, Alice, the general said, incensed at her slight of his importance at the affair. It's the 20th. I was on the first wave, the chaplain offered. Point to Hoke for you, the general asked the chaplain. Oh, God, no. Near the Brits on gold. What was a chaplain doing in the first wave? I was a corporal, sir, before seminary. I was in the 82nd Airborne, the general said with conceit. C-47 Dakota, second Boston wave. You piloted soldiers, Alice asked. Twenty-eight paratroopers, four crew. Were you hit? "'I had some rudder damage and lost a starboard engine. "'We ran a thousand feet and took a lot of flack "'until we were past the beach, "'and we dropped to seven hundred feet for the jump. I, "'I wanted to be a paratrooper,' the chaplain said, "'but I'm nearsighted, and, and, and they turned me down.' "'Alice raised her hand for the general's attention. "'I want to go to the ceremony next month,' she said. The general has his own plane, her mother said. Alice glared at her for repeating with pride something that everyone knew and many didn't approve of. Can I go with you, Alice asked again. I'd like to do an article for the paper. Eisenhower's going to be there. I'm one of the hosts, the general scoffed at Alice's failure to sound the respect he thought he deserved. Did you know Eisenhower, Alice asked. I met him twice after the war. Could you help me uh, get an interview with Eisenhower? Absolutely not. Because I'm a woman? Because you're a journalist. He's going to be interviewed by CBS's Walter Cronkite. Could I at least watch that? That will be private. Don't bother your father, her mother said. Have your editor asked the president's staff, she added. The general's not going to be involved in giving you permission for interviews. How would I make contact, Alice asked. It's impossible without help. Well, don't try, the general broke in. It's really not possible. I'm a journalist on the staff of the International Herald Tribune. That should mean something. The general worries that "'Journalists misrepresent the truth,' Mother said. "'He doesn't want to annoy people.' Alice tensed, her body rigid, and glared at her mother. "'Journalists are accurate with the facts, Mother. "'It's how we train, and it's what generals and politicians fear. "'Facts.' The general frowned, his gaze distant to the ceiling "'somewhere above the chaplain's wife.' "'Tommy doesn't want to be judged unfairly,' Mother said. "'It's easy for you journalists to take down successful people in high places.' "'Only the high and mighty,' Alice said. "'Those with false pride and conceit.' "'Tommy's not like that,' Mother said vehemently. "'I'm speaking over all,' Alice said. "'I don't want you to use my status to get your way,' the General finally said. "'Not now or ever.' "'Could I just fly up with you and back? "'That wouldn't be wrong, would it?' Alice asked. "'A silence ensued as everyone at the table stared at the general, "'trying to anticipate his answer. "'Let her go, Tommy,' Mother said. "'After a pause, the general shrugged, which everyone took as agreement. "'The chaplain's wife excused herself to go to the ladies, "'unsettled by the tension that had saturated the air.' Alice could not suppress a sardonic smile at her mother. At least she had a spot on the General's plane. The General's DC-3 was perfect for flights in the European theater. It landed on short runways. The General had fitted it with a galley for food and drinks and plush seats that reclined halfway to horizontal. Alice mounted the movable to enter the door behind the wing and made her way down the aisle. The general sat alone at the bulkhead in the first row of single seats. She saw an empty aisle seat in the row of double seats over the wing. She stored her handbag in the overhead compartment and sat next to Miles in the window seat without asking if the adjacent seat was occupied. She buckled her seatbelt and turned to Miles. My doctor, she said. You must be in the peak of health, Miles replied. You've never been in for a checkup. "'Too busy,' she said. "'He nodded and reached for a newspaper in the seat pocket in front of him. "'Oh, that's my paper,' Alice said. "'Sorry,' Miles said, handing the paper to her, "'even though he'd brought it on board. "'She laughed and pushed the paper back toward Miles. "'Oh, no, 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 no. "'I mean, that's the paper I work for, is the International Herald Tribune. "'That paper belongs to you,' Miles laughed, I forgot you work for the Tribune, he said. Freelance, she admitted. Are you going to see the president? she asked. I go where the general goes, like a seeing eye dog. Miles looked out the window as the right engine cranked up. The noise increased, and then the left engine. Miles watched the ground crew directing the pilots to the taxiway. He was thankful when the whining roar of the engine stifled conversation. He wasn't in the mood for a conversation with Alice. He didn't feel good with the after-effects of a lingering cold. They reached cruising altitude. Alice reached under her seat in front of her to retrieve a book she'd brought, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. "'Have you read this?' she asked, showing him the cover. Miles shook his head no. Alice B. Toklas was the lifelong partner of Gertrude Stein. They lived in Europe and during the war were Nazi sympathizers with the Vichy regime. She was a friend of the French General Pétain, who was sentenced to death for treason by French courts after the war. Stein thought Hitler merited the Nobel peace Prize for Mein Kampf. Both Stein and Toklas were Jews and lesbians, and it's thought that their pro-Nazi defense is probably what protected them from imprisonment and death in an era when Jews and homosexuals were slaughtered by Nazis as undesirables. "'You should read it,' Alice said. "'I'd like to,' Miles said. "'And pass it on to Ingrid. "'It would expand her knowledge of the Holocaust.' Alice leaned toward the window half over Miles' lap. The wing blocked most of her view. "Uh, "'Where are we now?' "'We've got about an hour and a half left.' Miles closed his eyes and put his head back on the headrest. When they let in in, Averu, the passengers gathered inside the waiting area for transportation from the Air Force Base to the coast. Alice walked up to Miles in the crowd. Look, she began, lowering her voice in the crowded room. You're my doc, and I need a favor. I'm not sure. Just listen. It's not much... My father wouldn't help me get an interview with the president. He wouldn't even help me get to see an interview with CBS and Walter Cronkite. I don't think he has. You'll be with him the whole day. I've got this handheld tape recorder. It'll fit in your medical bag. She pointed to the black leather bag in Miles's left hand. Could you keep it? If you get into the president's interview with Walter Cronkite with my father... "'Could you just switch it on?' "'Miles was silent, stunned by her audacity. "'It's no skin off your nose. "'Well, listen, go ask your father. "'If he says yes, and if it's allowed and he tells me it's okay, "'I'll think about it. "'You know he won't approve. "'You're right. "'It's not illegal. "'It's not right, and it may be illegal.' All I want is just a little help. Miles shook his head. Don't ask again. The general walked up to Miles an hour later when the dignitary's transport arrived to take them to quarters. I say, boy, you don't have a tape recorder with you, do you? The general asked. "Uh, No, sir. Don't lie to me. I'll put you in lockup. I won't lie, Miles said. And don't listen to that daughter of mine. Major Sitsipas overheard her. Alice spent the morning interviewing veterans. She talked to a German vet who had been in the bunker at the Puente du on D-Day. She asked him how many he had killed that day. Not enough, he said, and turned and spat on the ground as he walked away. In the afternoon, at the Puente du As a member of the general's family, Alice had negotiated to sit in the second row of dignitaries. Her father was one of the generals who gave a brief presentation about his experiences. He praised the bravery of more than 430 pilots, co-pilots, navigators, and radio operators who flew C-47s in from the west to drop paratroopers behind the beach frontal attack. He spoke of his ditch in the sea and who had died on that dreadful day. "'And the living heroes are my crew,' the general continued. "'Here today, co-pilot Jack Palmer and navigator Harold Sessions. "'You stand up, guys.' And he led more applause. "'The fool. "'He totally ignored the solemnity of the occasion, Alice thought, "'embarrassed that he was her father, and not her real father at that, "'and would dwell on his contributions.' "'and ignore the immense worldwide impact "'of hundreds of thousands of soldiers. "'She was surprised when co-pilot Jack Palmer, "'who was sitting next to her in the dignitary section, stood up. "'She'd never seen him before. "'She leaned toward him as he sat down. "'I'm from the International Tribune. Uh, "'May I interview you when this session is over?' "'Jake smiled. "'Off the record?' "'Not exactly what I wanted,' But yeah, okay. More speeches about bravery, sacrifice, heroics, and injustice continued. Then President Eisenhower stepped to the podium. He delivered a heartfelt talk about the horrors of the day in his strong mid-American accent. His words mesmerized Alice. And toward the end of the speech, he gave a memorable thought, a thought she would never forget. Dwight D. Eisenhower This D-Day has a very special meaning for me. I am not referring merely to the anxieties of the day, anxieties that were a natural part of sending an evasion where you knew many hundreds of boys were going to give their lives or be maimed forever. But my mind goes back so often to this fact. My own son graduated on D-Day from West Point After his training, on the very day he graduated, these men came here when the British and our other allies stormed the beaches for one purpose only, not to gain anything for ourselves, not to fulfill any ambitions Americans had for conquest, but just to preserve freedom. Systems of self-government in the world— Many thousands of men died for ideals such as these. These young boys over whose graves we have been treading, looking and wondering about their sacrifices. They were cut off in their prime. They have families that grieve for them, that never knew the grave experiences to go through life like my son has known. I devoutly hope that we will never see such things again. I think, hope, and pray that humanity has learned more than we had ever learned up to that time. Every time I come back to these beaches, or any time I think about that day 20 years ago, I say once more we must find some way to work for peace and to really gain an eternal peace for this world. An interesting man, Alice thought feeling even worse about her father's dwelling on his own experience and ignoring the liberation that took hundreds of thousands of lives. The seats cleared, and Alice stayed with Jake Palmler in the now empty rows of chairs. Eisenhower's speech moved me, she said. It was a terrible time, Jake said. What was it like for you? Were you in the first wave? Was it frightening? It was the second Boston wave. More than 400 C-47s, wingtip to wingtip, approached from the west at about one to 2,000 feet because of the dense cloud cover. We took a lot of flack at that level. We carried 28 paratroopers for a drop at 600 feet behind the front lines. We lost a wingman minutes before we were to drop. There were a lot of heroes that day. The General said that you lost a starboard engine and rudder control. Uh, "'That isn't exactly true, ma'am. "'We wouldn't have survived that day with an engine lost. "'One out of three planes from our squadron were shot down. "'But we made the drop without major damage. "'In the confusion of poor visibility, radio silence, and obscured landmarks, "'we dropped the paratroopers two miles from the D.C. "'And what did you feel during those moments? "'We were all afraid of death.' But I really had no time to think about the act of dying. You weren't shot down over France, as the general said. Uh, No, ma'am. The general was a captain then. He doesn't remember what happened. We ditched in the channel, out of fuel from a leak in a fuel tank. Teddy, a radio operator, was the last out of the plane and was dog-paddling towards us, and the general went berserk as Harry Sessions, the navigator, and I were trying to keep his head above water. When the general saw Teddy, he thought he was the enemy, and he grabbed a piece of floating debris and hit him in the head, knocking him unconscious. By the time we got the general quiet enough that one of us could take care of him, I swam to Teddy, who was half-submerged face down. I turned him over. He was dead. He drowned before I could get through the rough waters to revive him. And the general doesn't remember? No, ma'am. He'd been psychotic from the time when the wingman was hit and went down in flames. The general was moaning and cursing and babbling. Harry pulled him out of the left seat so he wouldn't bang the controls. And you flew the airplane? Yes, ma'am. Until we had to ditch. The general received the Medal of Honor for that mission, Alice said. Uh, For the traumatic effects of battle, I guess. And that's justified. He was hospitalized for a couple of months, then sent to the state for electric shock treatments. At least I was told that a couple of years later by Harry the Navigator. He's here today. Yes, isn't that him? She pointed to a man a few seats down the next row. I saw him stand when the general called on him. You can ask him, but I've never heard him speak about that day. It's sad. Teddy and Harry were the heroes of that day. But Harry doesn't believe the general deserved a medal, but he never speaks about it. My father is a sham, she thought. She continued the interview until Miles approached to escort her, at her father's request, to the airport for a return trip in the general's plane. Alice wrestled with what she should do about the truth with her father. It was difficult being around her mother now, Did her mother know? Alice wasn't sure. And it would never be wise to confront her father. He would not remember the day, and even if slivers of remembrance of the day did come to him, he would suppress them, never to be considered again. She decided to never publish the truth. It would serve no purpose after almost twenty years. When Alice returned home from Normandy, Margaret... Her sister had arrived from the States, fatigued and bordering on non-communicative from the trip and months of wrangling over a still unresolved divorce settlement. Her children were in her husband's custody, and she no longer cared. She was ready for a new life. Margaret and all her belongings were in the second bedroom that Alice had been using. Alice's belongings had been relegated to a corner of the dining room, and she was to sleep in the living room now on a pull-out sofa bed. Alice, Margaret, and their mother sat at the small metal top kitchen table bearing a coffee pot and three mugs. An awkward silence prevailed for many seconds. Alice went to the D-Day commemoration in Normandy to hear father speak. Her mother finally said. Margaret remained silent, doing her nails. "'Did you have a good trip?' Alice asked Margaret. Margaret shrugged. "'Please try to be civil, Margaret,' Alice said. "'Make a little conversation.' "'Don't trouble Margaret, dear,' Mother said, looking down at her coffee cup, annoyed at Alice's remark. "'We're living together. "'Is it trouble to speak when spoken to?' Alice questioned Margaret. "'Don't be unreasonable.' Margaret will talk when she's ready, Mother replied. Will the two of you shut up, Margaret said. I have a splitting headache. I can't take this, Alice thought. She left the table, grabbed her coat from a peg near the front door, and went for a walk. Chapter 16. Pamplona. 1964. One evening, at their weekly painting session with Bruce McKenzie, the subject focused on still-life renderings of a decorative pottery bowl filled with oranges, avocados, figs, and apples, and in the foreground, along with four brown eggs, asparagus, and a sunflower set on a polished walnut tabletop. Ingrid said to Miles, Ollie wants you and me to go to the San Fermin Fiesta in Pamplona, the running of the bulls, like if the sun also rises. "'It's dangerous,' Bruce said sternly. Ingrid smiled. "'I won't be running, but I can enjoy the festival with thousands of others.' "'Just be careful around the bulls,' Bruce said. "'Each day the run lasts about two minutes, so there's lots of time to enjoy the festival without running with the bulls.' "'Can you go, Miles?' Ingrid asked. "'I'm going to ask Alice Reed to Sure, tell me the dates. I'll send you a note. Ali can order your costumes. How are we supposed to dress up? Miles asked. I'm not sure yet. The traditional costumes are the same for everyone: white shirts and pants, and red waistbands and kerchiefs. Not mandatory, but natives and most visitors wear them. Ingrid said. Alice and I will decide when we get there. Is running with the bulls for you, Miles? Bruce asked. I'm not sure about running with the bulls. And Oliver? Bruce asked Ingrid. He's intent on doing at least one or two during the week. It's not good for amateurs, Bruce said. The village men practice for years to stay in shape. They study the bulls to scout out the peculiarities in their movements. I know, Ingrid said. And Oliver isn't in great shape, or even athletic. But there will be no stopping him. "'Well, it's not an easy trip,' Bruce said, "'concerned about the risk to his friends. "'How long?' Miles asked. "'To drive? 500 miles? Eight to nine hours?' "'We could go by train, couldn't we?' Ingrid asked. "'That's a disaster. Fifteen hours. two changeovers en route. "'Expensive. You'd do better to drive.' "'We'll drive,' Ingrid said. "'It will be a great trip.' "'Perfect,' said Miles. Bruce frowned. The next morning, Bruce mentioned it to Ina over breakfast. Ingrid and Miles are going to the running of the bulls. Carmagoo? Ina asked. No. Arles? Pamplona." Well, that would be the most exciting. Is Oliver going? It was his idea, and they're asking Alice Reed. Don't worry. They'll be all right. I'm not so sure, Bruce said. Oliver seems intent on running with the animals, and I worry about him. And I don't know about Miles, but I think he's got too much good sense to run. Pamplona has the best bred bulls raised for exciting kills. Amateurs are really the only ones at serious risk. Are Oliver and Ingrid getting along well? Uh, it's hard to know. She spends a lot of time with Miles? "'They care for each other, Ina. "'I don't think either of them knows the strength of the other's feelings. "'Is it love? "'I think intensely platonic now, "'but I think each has a passionate caring for the other. "'And Ingrid's unhappy in her marriage?' Ina asked. "'Oh, she'd never admit it. "'She's extremely loyal to Oliver as a husband "'and the institution of marriage. "'I'm pretty sure she is faithful to the Jewish laws "'and traditions of marriage.' But he doesn't seem to respect her. She's such a kind person, Ina said. I feel terrible for both of them, Bruce said. Three weeks later, Ingrid and Oliver, and Miles with Alice, left before dawn before the drive to Pamplona Festival. They stopped at a small restaurant north of Bordeaux for lunch, and an hour and a half later they crossed the Spanish border. A breezeless, gentle, misty rain obscured the rolling hills and the architectural features of the stone buildings in the farms and towns. The windshield wipers slapped back and forth rhythmically. "'I'm not really comfortable with this bull thing,' Ingrid admitted. "'Oh, what's wrong now?' Oliver said. "'I asked the travel agent in town. "'He thinks it's unnecessarily cruel.' They breed bulls for the ring, torture them, and usually murder them if they don't do a superior job at the climax of a performance. It's bizarre. There's plenty to do at the festival, Oliver said. You'll be on balconies to watch the run, and you don't even have to go to the bullfighting at the end. You thinking about running? Oliver asked Miles. I I wouldn't enjoy it, Miles said. Well, it's a challenge. You don't have to enjoy it. Not for me, Ollie. But you're going to watch, right? I got us coveted balcony views on the route. Of course, Miles said. Ingrid asked Alice about her thoughts on bullfighting. I I don't understand it, but I'd like to learn. I'll take photos and do interviews. The Tribune is interested in an article with personal standpoints of participants and observers. It dates back to the 14th century, Oliver said. "'How has it lasted this long?' Ingrid asked. "'There must be some objectors.' "'It is strange,' Alice joined in. "'It's tied to a religious holiday in some historical way "'that I've yet to understand. "'It honors a saint who was the first bishop of Pamplona. "'The red kerchief at the neck is to remember the saint's beheading.' "'There are always animal rights objectors,' Oliver said, "'but they just demonstrate there is no danger.' Miles, knowing Ingrid's feelings against hurting animals, gave her a sympathetic glance. They rode in silence for a while. By mid-afternoon, as they were approaching an intersection, Oliver asked Ingrid to check the map. "'I think we turn soon. Did you see a route marker? We're on the A-63.' "'Have you seen a sign?' she asked. "Uh, "'Not yet.' "'Ah, I found it,' Ingrid said, her finger on the map.' Look for the A 21A. When they arrived in Pamplona, the sun was halfway to the horizon, dimmed by occasional sinuous clouds. Tourists crowded the streets. They found the hotel La Perla. What were you thinking, Ollie? Ingrid asked in amazement. We can't afford a five star hotel. It's close to the action. "'I'll be paying for the hotel rooms,' Miles announced, "'anxious about the antagonist building between Ingrid and Oliver. "'And we'll cover other expenses then,' Ingrid said. "'Ingrid and Alice went shopping in town, "'intent on matching the traditional white and red costumes "'Oliver had bought for himself and Miles. "'At one point, through a store window, "'Ingrid saw a dark-haired woman who looked familiar, "'seemingly waiting for someone.' She gestured for Alice to follow, and they approached the woman. Hello, Ingrid ventured. You look familiar. I'm Ingrid Stern. Are you from Chateauroux? My husband is stationed at Chateauroux Air Base. me, madame. I do not speak English well. You're not from Chateauroux? I know I've seen her before, Ingrid thought. The woman shrugged her shoulders and shook her head no. "'I'm sorry to have bothered you,' Ingrid said, "'turning with Alice to walk away. "'I think she speaks English with perfection, don't you?' Alice said. "'I heard no trace of an accent in those few words. "'Why would she lie?' "'I think it was in the commissary,' Ingrid said. "'Would she be allowed in the commissary? "'A guest can sometimes get a one-time pass.' "'The French can be so rude. "'I thought you were more than gracious.' "'Well, let's get dressed for the festival,' Ingrid said. "'I think we were wise to buy pants.' "'They were made for a Buddha,' Alice smiled. "'Later in the day, as Ingrid gazed from the hotel window at the crowd, "'she thought she saw the woman again. "'She seemed alone, strolling hesitantly, as if without purpose. "'When Ingrid and Oliver had a few seconds alone,' "'Oliver was immediately grumpy. "'Why are we paying for everyone's expenses?' "'This was your invitation. "'Not for Alice. "'I invited her, which effectively means we invited her,' Ingrid argued. "'And Miles is very generous to pay for the rooms. "'Don't ever say we'll pay again. "'Always ask me first. "'Always.' "'Ingrid looked away.' her eyes simmering with irritation. Oliver had reserved two adjoining rooms with attached balconies to view the spectacle of the bulls and the steers and people careening through narrow cobblestone streets. He joined Ingrid, Ellis, and Miles when he was not running, but on the third day he left to be in the best position in front of the bulls. The others couldn't see the start or the first part of the run, but they heard the rocket launch and the roar of the bulls and humans thundering down the course. Forty-five seconds after the start, the runners came into view, cramped in a spaceless mass in front of the bulls. Oliver lagged from the leaders and became enveloped by the pack, trapped behind a bull he could barely keep up with and nudged by the head-down horns of the bull behind him. "'Shouldn't he be outside the pack?' "'Ingrid asked anxiously. "'He's down!' Alice shouted. "'Oliver was on all fours "'and instantly turned on his right side. "'He tightened his body, chin down, "'with his arms over his head, knees drawn up to his chest, "'what he remembered from his brief instructions. "'I'm going to die,' he thought. "'The front right hoof of a mimpak bull "'trampled his thigh, and he screamed.' The next bull straddled him. A distance between the six fighting bulls and the second pack of six steers left a few precious seconds free of clamoring hooves, and Oliver crawled on hands and knees, dragging his injured leg to the side of the course, where two uniformed emergency workers lifted him to safety, below and out of sight of Ingrid Miles and Alice. "'We've got to go find him, Miles said. Within two minutes... They were on the street headed for the flags above the emergency station where attendants and an ambulance were waiting. They approached. Oliver Stern? Miles asked an attendant. Two attendants were working on Oliver. He breathed oxygen through a mask attached to a tank. A woman stood by him holding a blanket. That's the woman at the store, Ingrid thought. Alice glanced at Ingrid, having noticed her too. The woman handed the blanket to the nurse and held Oliver's hand in both of hers. When she saw Ingrid and Alice, she turned away, covering her face with her kerchief, and ran into the crowd, who had gathered in a half-circle a few feet away. Ingrid approached and leaned over to speak to Oliver. His eyes were half-closed. Ollie, she said with unrestrained panic, but Oliver was flaccid and barely responsive. "'He is unconscious, almost with pain medicine,' "'an attendant said with a heavy accent. "'Do you know that woman?' Ingrid asked. "'The attendant shrugged his shoulders. "'What sedation has he had?' Miles asked. "'The attendant shook his head and said nothing. "'The stretcher with Oliver was lifted and pushed into the ambulance. "'Where are the car keys?' Miles asked Ingrid. "'Does Ollie have them?' "'In our room.' "'On my bedside table, here is the room key,' Ingrid said. "'Miles took the key. "'Go with him to the hospital,' he said to Ingrid. "'Alice, come with me.' "'I'll go with Ingrid,' Alice said. "'You can't. They'll allow only one family member.' The woman, who had been at Oliver's side, stood at the edge of the crowd, her eyes wet with concern, and trying to hide her face. Neither Miles, Ingrid, nor Alice saw her again. But Ingrid was suspicious of the intimate gestures she had witnessed. She knew Oliver had had affairs during their marriage, but she had not recognized or maybe ignored signs since they had arrived in France. The ambulance pulled away, lights flashing, siren and horns blaring. Will he be all right? Alice asked as they rushed back to the hotel. "'I'll get the keys and check out,' Miles said. "'Grab what you need and I'll meet you at the car.' "'I'll need directions to the hospital,' he worried. "'At the hospital, X-rays showed a fracture in the femur "'and a hairline fractures were visible in two lower left ribs "'but no sign of lung collapse. "'Oliver's gaping thigh wound was closed and dressed. "'Ingrid stayed with him at the hospital "'for two nights for blood transfusions.' Alice and Miles returned each night to the hotel. On the third day after the injury, with one day still left in the festival, Miles drove the Jaguar on their return to Chateauroux. Alice sat in front, and Oliver lay on his back on the back seat. Miles had purchased three pillows from the hotel checkout, and Ingrid had positioned herself in the narrow space available in the back. Alice and Miles could hear Ingrid and Oliver's argument. It started as soon as she asked if you were comfortable. Don't start, Oliver said. Do you need me to adjust a pillow? Ingrid asked. Stop it. Ingrid remained silent. I know you think I deserve this, Oliver said. I shouldn't take risks. What are you talking about? I feel terrible it happened, Ollie. And you think I should have listened to you, you and your superior knowledge and intelligence. I'm not mentally retarded, you know. And you're not always right. I've never thought... Don't blame me for the inconvenience. I didn't try to get you hurt. Alice glanced at Miles, who shook his head slightly in disbelief. It's not an inconvenience, Ingrid sighed. It's a terrible accident of unpredictable fate. I don't like condescension. Rest for a while. Don't bully me, I'll rest when I want to. Oliver's labored breathing calmed after a few minutes, and a silence descended in the back that lasted more than a hundred miles. Chapter 17. Insubordination. 1964. In April of 1964, Colonel Springer court-martialed Miles for insubordination and failure to abide by the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Miles tracked down the lawyer, Bob Goggin. Did you hear what happened? Goggin stood up and leaned against the rake he was using to aerate the soil in the garden behind the house in Bras Of course, it's all over base, he said. What should I do? Well, you'll be allowed to plead guilty or not guilty. If you plead guilty, the commander can dismiss or impose a punishment, but you should plead not guilty. A panel will review the evidence before a jury is convened, and I think you'd be vindicated in a trial. Can I have counsel? Oh, yeah, a defense attorney, military or private. Would you do that? Well, have to look, but I don't remember a medical doctor being court-martialed for insubordination. As military, I probably have as much background as any counsel. I'd have to be appointed, though. I wouldn't trust anyone else, Miles said. I'll see if I can get appointed. If I can, I'll do the best job possible. Thanks. On one condition. Name it. I win the next two out of three squash games. I want to make my wife proud. Agreed. And don't go around saying how difficult it's going to be to lose to me. My voice is silent, Miles said. Miles submitted a plea of not guilty. When the trial ensued, the prosecuting attorney brought up Miles's continuous refusal to call Commander Springer, sir. Goggin pointed out how trivial that was and that Miles had learned and now routinely called Springer, sir. The prosecutor felt that among the worst occurrences for insubordinate disobedience was Miles taking a proposal for training of triage, which had been denied by Colonel Springer to his commander for implementation and funding. Humiliating, Commander Springer had testified. Then, after a break, Oliver Stern was sworn in and brought to the prosecutor's table. I never have thought this would happen, Miles said to Goggin. He was subpoenaed, Goggin responded. The prosecutor approached Oliver in the witness chair. After routine questions, he asked, did you ever accompany Captain Ballard to Commander Dillinger's office? Oliver nodded. Speak up, prosecutor admonished. Oh yes, sir, Oliver said. The prosecutor established the purpose of the visit was to seek support and money for training doctors and personnel in case of nuclear attack. Did you support that request? He asked Oliver. I'm always in favor of more current training, Oliver said, but I was not in favor of going to Commander Dillinger. And why was that? Captain Ballard is my friend. I admired the work he'd done on creating the proposal. I wasn't sure it was financially wise, but I thought the results would benefit doctors. I did not support going to Commander Dillinger. But you were there? I thought there was value to the proposal and hoped Commander Dillinger might support it, but I was apprehensive about bypassing Colonel Springer. That's a bummer, Goggin whispered to Miles. Because of Ballard's disobedience of Colonel Springer's reputation and standing, the prosecutor asked. Goggin objected. "Uh, No matter, the prosecutor said, as the statement was removed from the record. He continued, "'Do you wish now that you hadn't gone?' "'Oh, yes, sir,' Oliver said. "'I wish I hadn't gone.' "'Was Captain Ballard aware of your feelings?' "'Um, yes, sir,' Oliver said. "'I expressed my concern more than once.' "'He's your friend?' "'Goggin whispered to Miles. "'I thought so,' Miles replied. "'The prosecuting attorney continued.' Miles was accused of continuing the suicide questionnaires after Springer had ordered him to stop because of cost and waste of staff time that diminished their performance with military personnel. Goggin pointed out that the suicide rates among dependents had been among the highest in any branch of the military and that after the implementation of techniques there had been a dramatic decrease from two or three a month to zero in six months. The prosecutor asserted a measurable decrease in productivity among staff as a result of the questionnaires. Goggin insisted it was impossible to attribute decreased productivity to the effort to eliminate suicides. The adjutant general called the lawyers to the bench. He looked mostly at Goggin. Insubordination does not relate to suicides, he said. The question at hand is directly related to disobedience of a superior's orders. That is unrelated to the success or failure of the suicide initiative. Understood? Reluctantly, Goggin agreed. After a delay, the prosecutor presented an airman witness who said he'd heard the colonel's orders to Ballard. In cross-examination, Goggin asked the airman exactly what the colonel had said. Did he say... "'I ordered you never to do another survey on suicide symptoms?' Uh, uh, "'Not uh, not exactly like that,' the airman said. "'What exactly did he say, then?' "'The airman seemed not to be able to look at the court, "'his gaze fixed on a crack in the wooden flooring. "'You're testifying under oath about something you can't quite remember?' "'Goggin asked.' "'No, sir. It was different.' Like, it didn't make sense to do surveys on dependence about suicides and that it wasn't cost-efficient. Did Colonel Springer say to Captain Ballard, I order you to stop? Did he use that word, order? I I, I don't remember that. You just heard the colonel speak about the negatives of action? Well, sir, it's hard to remember. Did you hear the word order, yes or no? I can't say. You do know that you're here to testify about insubordination. How did you know Captain Ballard was out of line? What did he do that made you believe he was insubordinate? He continued to do the surveys. And although you didn't hear any order given, you believe what you heard about the captain, and then you saw over many weeks, if not many months, What you thought was inappropriate action on Captain Ballard's part? Uh, I thought you assumed. The airman descended into silence. Back at the defense table, Miles leaned over to Goggin. How did that go? I'm not sure. He'd been coached for hours. I don't ever remember an order being given. Forget it. We've got a lot more to bring out. The next day, the prosecutor brought more instances of insubordination. Failure to correct the chart of a major when ordered, and failure to cease treating Belinda May Cerrone outside the hospital when Springer considered her his patient. The lawyer brought in a volunteer nurse's assistance who thought she'd heard the order, but Goggin repeatedly questioned her until it was apparent she wasn't sure at all and established she was a personal friend of Colonel Springer. Three days later, after another day of testimony, the military judge delivered the panel's verdict. Guilty. The trial counsel came up to Goggin and Miles in the hall. "Uh, We were hampered by the definition of insubordination, Goggin said. I think the definition should be different for the medical service. Appeal now, trial counsel said. You don't have much time. It's an unusual and murky case. This is the Medical Corps. Work on it from that angle. It's generally accepted. The Medical Corps should be treated differently. The appeal took two weeks. Verdict reversed. Miles went back on duty, but with the cloak of a court-martial on his record and reputation. Chapter 18. Alice Breaks a Leg 1965 Alice Alice sat alone at a table for two in front of the Café de France in chasse A gentleman in a suit approached and sat in a chair at a table, without a greeting. A garçon took his order. The man took out a newspaper, refolded it with some care so as to not interfere with those around him, and began to read. Within minutes the sky clouded and a light rain fell, dampening the street. Alice placed a few coins on the table, grabbed her bag, and headed for the bus stop. The military bus for the base was a few hundred yards away. She paused at the curb to let a car pass. A bicyclist came from the opposite direction, out of control his bike vaulting over the curb, hitting Alice from the side. She lost her balance, twisting on one leg and fell on the ground, her leg directly impaling with all her weight on the curb. The bicycle, zigzagging with the full weight of the man, toppled over and the sturdy portion of the frame landed on Alice's leg. She screamed in pain and struggled to get up, clawing the ground trying to reach the bus. When the driver saw no passengers waiting at the stop, he continued on, unaware that Alice was injured. She collapsed face down on the street. The cyclist examined his bike, mounted, and pedalled off without looking down. The man who had been sitting at the table with her moved quickly to her side, gently turning her over. "Uh, "'You are well, no?' he asked in French. She nodded reflexively, but her heart pounded. Her leg hurt, and she started to cry. The man grabbed her shoulders to steady her, and after a few minutes he helped her stand. Searing pain made her stumble when she tried to take a step. She moaned. "'There is a doctor's office very near,' he said in English. "'Put your arm around my shoulder.' She hobbled forward on her good leg. "'He is a very good doctor. A friend of mine.' Even in her distress, his courtesy touched her. The doctor controlled the bleeding from a superficial wound, gave Alice a pain pill, and determined she might have a fracture. She needed an X-ray.' and would have to go to the American base. The gentleman insisted he would take her, and with the help of the doctor's nurse, they used her into the back seat of his car. At the base hospital, after the X-ray, she waited for the result lying on a gurney in the exam room. The man was still waiting with her until he knew the extent of her injury. "I "'I don't know your name,' Alice said. "'I am Antoine Villard.' She thanked him for his help in a weak, exhausted voice. "'And what do you do?' "'I am an avocat,' he said. "'What kind?' she wondered, dejected. "'She thought lawyers were mundane and hackneyed thinkers "'against everything and rarely in favor of anything. "'Are you here with your family?' he asked. "'My father is the base commander,' she said.' At the base hospital, an hour later, Miles approached Alice, lying on a gurney in the hallway near X-ray. "'I saw your X-ray. Fractures of the tibia and fibula that are unstable. you need surgery.' "'I am very sorry of the result,' Antoine said. A tech prepared to push the gurney down the hall to the clinic. "'Our orthopedist is on leave,' Miles said. "'We'll find another hospital to do your surgery.' Antoine excused himself. I will visit again, mademoiselle. Heal well. Alice waited in a hospital bed with her leg elevated in traction, waiting for resolution on the transfer for surgery. The army base in Orléans had a surgeon available. Antoine Villard returned the next morning clutching a crystal vase with a bouquet of flowers that sparkled with reflected rays from the morning sun streaming through the window. "'They are beautiful,' Alice said sincerely, "'her voice attenuated from constant dull leg pain. "'I'm very pleased that you like them,' he said. "'Are they from nature? "'The yellow asters and the bluebells grow wild in me, yes. Uh, uh, "'The packerets, too. "'The others grow in my greenhouse. "'You grow flowers? "'Mostly. "'Some herbs and tomatoes and greens without flowers.' Song of India and yucca for the house, and I care for my mother's bonsai. She is unable to care for plants as often as she used to. She is not well. She is hampered with pain from arthritis, but she is able to do some cooking and sew throat rugs. And you practice law? Ever is my profession, but plants are my passion. Alice asked about roses in the bouquet. He touched the blooms with tips of his fingers. Martagon hybrids, he said. They have received awards. They are special, Alice said. I love roses. I will place them on the windowsill so that you can see them from the bed. She told him of her stepmother's passion for flowers, a memory of happier times. As he prepared to leave, he said, Good health, and when you are better, You must come take dinner at my house. Meet my mother. Alice, touched by her growing value of Antoine's character, agreed. I look forward with pleasure, she said. Will you have surgery? Antoine asked as he was leaving. "Uh, Yes, Alice answered. In Orleans. An orthopedic surgeon is available at the army base there. Bonne chance, he whispered to her. When Colonel Springer had heard the general's daughter was in the hospital care, he immediately supervised Alice's transfer to Orleans. He arranged for the newest and best military ambulance and demanded Miles take care of the paperwork. "'And you go with her,' Springer said, standing a few feet away from Alice's gurney and speaking to Miles. "'But I have a full clinic schedule.' You're the generalist, doctor, and you damn well will be taking personal care of his daughter's transfer to Orleans and her return. I could follow after I see my patients. Reschedule, damn it. You ride that ambulance and hold her goddamn hand if she needs it. It's not a life-threatening danger, Miles said, and the ambulance crew is the best. Will you listen to me? Springer leaned forward so he was a few inches from Miles' face. Springer's words were loud and saliva fraught at the corner of his mouth. You get your ass on that ambulance, and you act like you got a princess in your care, and you'll be proud to serve, not your usual don't-make-a-difference-to-me shit. But my patience, it's in order. You speak another word, and you'll be swallowing your teeth. "'Springer turned to walk away and stopped. "'He glanced at Alice on the gurney a few yards away. "'This here's Ballard. "'He'll be with you on your visit to the specialist. "'I I know him. He's my doctor. "'I'm the general's family,' she said to Springer with muted enthusiasm. "'She knew Springer was well aware of who she was. "'I'm sorry, ma'am. "'I didn't know you were so close.' But don't worry, Ballard's just for transfer. I've got you the best stock at Orleans, waiting. Top-notch orthopedic surgeon. Springer walked away. The ambulance driver glanced at Miles askance with eyebrows raised, disgusted at Springer's attitude, but like Miles, compelled to tolerate it. Miles sat on the metal side bench that lined the wall and back of the ambulance, He positioned next to the secured gurney that was strapped so he could monitor Alice during the trip. It was a few minutes before they reached cruising speed on the highway. "'You didn't want to do this. Was it because of how I acted?' she asked. Miles shrugged. "'No, not you. I feel a responsibility to my patients.' "'That Springer guy is a barbarian,' she said. "'He's weird,' Miles admitted.' Have you ever read the Gertrude Stein book I showed you? I tried, but I wanted instead to read the history of Stein's life. I didn't know how, as a Jew, she made it through occupation alive. She didn't lack self-confidence. Do you know she went to Johns Hopkins for medical school, but dropped out? I doubt it was about academics, Alice said. I think she got bored. The life of the wealthy and connected, Miles said. I lent the book to my friend, Ingrid. I know her. What did she think? She got tied up in the Stein's art salon and their support of new artists like Matisse and Cezanne and Brock. Picasso did a portrait of Stein. I don't think Ingrid liked it very much. They wrote in silence for a few minutes before Miles spoke again. Why did you come to France, he asked. I got phased out as a reporter at the New York Herald Tribune. They're in deep financial doo-doo, so I talked to them about freelancing, but the only place they'd let me do it was in Europe for the International Herald Tribune. So with my parents here, I took the demotion rather than get fired with no job in the States and came to France. These are difficult times, Miles said. Are you happy you came? I think so, Miles said. I miss the States, and many French people don't like me as an American. I was bicycling near La Vru and a motorist ran me into a ditch. I've treated two patients with minor injuries in the last couple of months, cyclists deliberately forced off the road by French drivers. There's a mandate from the military police not to ride bicycles when in uniform on major thoroughfares. I can't believe a bicyclist would do that on purpose, she thought. Why do they dislike us? It's not all of them, Miles said, but many do resent Americans. They find us rude, bad-mannered, uncultured, materialistic, and we murder their language without trying to improve. They're intent on preserving the French language. But we liberated them with the British and the Canadians. They're not looked on with fondness either by the French. And there's the anti-Semitism? Not ubiquitous. But definitely it's there. And all of Europe, I guess. Besides Hitler, I've read about the Russian Nicholas II and anti Semitism. Even the French Vichy government arrested tens of thousands of Jews during the occupation who were transferred to Auschwitz. It said they were told the Jews were being relocated and they were unaware of the extermination camps. But that doesn't seem possible. But who knows? Ingrid and Oliver are Jews that are looking for family members in the Holocaust, aren't they? Do they know about the French collaboration with the Vichy government? Yes, said Miles. Are they comfortable living in France? It's only been, what, 18 years. Do they know collaborating French people arrested fellow Jewish citizens, even in the Andre and sent them to a detention center at Drancy, north of Paris? where 60,000 Jews were then sent to Auschwitz to be gassed. And the French collaborators say they believed the Jews were being relocated to different receptive countries. And that doesn't bother your Jewish friends? Oh, I'm sure it does, Miles said. It's strange. I find them special people in many ways. And they make friends like the Francophiles they are. You'll do the same. I think most of the French I've met are pro-American— Some without apathy, but many sincerely thankful for our presence, if not respectful. And what about you? Why did you come? I got drafted, Miles said. Ouch, sorry. Once I was drafted, I wanted to come to Europe. France was serendipity, and it's working out. The ambulance brake to avoid a crash, and Alice, held in place by restraints, slid forward a few inches on the stretcher. She said she was okay when Miles asked. I'm thinking of moving out of my father's place and living on the economy, Alice said. And I'll be traveling looking for news stories. I'll be searching for a place to live. I've started taking French. Do you know it? I've got a tutor, but I started from scratch, so I'm not really good yet. My teacher is great. I could introduce you. "'I've already started courses at the base, "'but I'm not pleased with the quality.' "'Miles told her of many valuable interactions "'he'd had with Madame Levine, "'new places he'd visited, ideas he'd discovered. "'I'd be pleased if you asked your tutor,' Alice said. "'Consider it done. I'll let you know.' "'Time passed rapidly. "'They soon arrived in Orleans. "'I've misjudged him.' Alice thought about Miles. He's more human than most doctors I've known. As they pulled into the emergency room entrance of the base hospital in Orleans, Alice said, I'm sorry, doctor. About that time we were flying in my father's plane to D-Day, I wasn't friendly. Alice reached out and took Miles' hand. I want to be your friend, she said. He smiled, pleased with the thought. Miles stayed throughout her surgery and post-operatively. She was discharged in two days to remain in a short cast for six to eight weeks, until the orthopedist expected she could begin weight-bearing and ambulation with crutches or a cane, with some pain, but not incapacitated. Chapter 19. Suspicions. 1965. Alice. Two months later, Alice's leg was better, and she was weight-bearing, but she was plagued with oscillating blue moods and days of hyper-excitement. She accepted Myles' offer to introduce her to Madame Levine, and she now went twice a week for her lessons. At one of Miles' French lessons with Madame Levine a few months later, he asked how Alice was progressing. "'I am very concerned, monsieur. "'It is very personal, but I believe you should know.' She lives with the family of a Monsieur Villard. The attorney, I've not met him, but she has told me of his kindness to her when she broke her leg. I know him only from the war. We do not associate. Why? He was an officer in the milice. I suspect he was at least indirectly responsible for the murder of my first husband in 1944 in Toulon. I'm so sorry. I didn't know he was murdered. Yes, by the Milicien, Not Germans? No, the Milicien were collaborators with the Vichy government controlled by the Germans. My family and most of the French patriots who fought in the resistance fought against the Milice. I, I don't understand. What were they? It was a terrible time for French people. With the occupation, people starved. There were no jobs, and the Vichy government... French citizens who supported the Nazi leaders of the occupation attracted support for the extermination of Jews and undesirables. French police, supporting the German-controlled French Vichy government, arrested French people supporting the resistance and imprisoned them, and they sent tens of thousands of Jews to concentration camps. Most were executed, but after independence, the milice were hunted as collaborators by the loyalists. Many were tried and convicted or simply imprisoned or executed. And Villard was one of the milice? Yes, uh, he was an avocat in tours, and his family lived on the farm near us. He was part of the milice. With their silence, he condoned the murder of our civilians, and resistant militia. We do not forgive him. How did he survive? He escaped to South America, Argentina, I think. In late 1944, he came back in 1956. He has never been well-received on his return, and he has no occupation now. He does keep hours on some days in his law office, but I think that he has few clients. He sells flowers to those who do not know his past. Does Alice know this? I do not think so. It is not right for me to tell her. Villard seems to treat her well. Maybe he is no longer an evil man in heart. Some think he was trapped by the cruel, immoral political movements of the time. But he is a communist and rumored to run for office, and I think he will have little support. I never want him to win. Do you worry about Alice? He will not hurt her physically, I think. Only mental. Americans know little of the Vichy regime collaborators and almost nothing about the Malise. They have no reason to ill-treat Villard. It's sad. Alice is happy for the first time since her arrival. I know she takes meals with the family at times and lives in the restored house on the property. Yes, she is close to the family, Miles said. She is unhappy with her parents and sister. She's adopted, you know. I do know, and it's hard for her, Miles said. Her father is a general who never includes her as part of the family, and all the family treat her with rejection and disrespect. "'It is probably best to say nothing,' Madame Levine said. Yet, if she knew his past, her judgment of Villard might not be haunted by negative secrets that are so often buried so close to the surface and threatening a friendship.' Miles thought for a moment. "'You're right.' She might resent being told, but it would be best for her to face his past and learn if it would make a difference in their relationship now. I agree, Madame Levine said, probably better now than later. It is inevitable, I think. Miles had dinner with Ingrid and Oliver the same evening at their home. He discussed what he learned from Madame Levine about Villar's he was next to her when she broke her leg, Ingrid said. But that's strange, wasn't it, Oliver asked? A Frenchman, a complete stranger, helping an American and then following up like a suitor? She's very attractive, Ingrid said. And I said so to Madame Levine at my lesson, Miles said. Tall, attractive, Oliver said. Not taller than Villard, and very attractive in an American way, Miles said. She's very natural, Ingrid said, beautiful in her own right. It does seem strange, though, that he'd be attracted to her, an American, said Miles, and she's the general's daughter. What difference does that make, Ingrid asked. Well, we're always being instructed not to befriend strangers, Oliver said. Spies are everywhere and come in different looks and sizes. But French work all over the base, Ingrid said. Carefully vetted, we're in a cold war with the Soviets. No one is above suspicion, Oliver said. And he's a communist, Miles said. And nuzzling up to a commander's daughter would be valuable, Oliver said. Well, possibly could he learn, Ingrid asked, who determinedly trusted everyone. Military strength, types of airplanes equipped for combat, flight destinations— Arrival of new aircraft. Wherever it's possible to insert spies into the workforce, Oliver said. Why Chateauroux? Ingrid asked. We're mainly transport and have thousands of landings a month from planes from all over, Oliver said. Exasperated at Ingrid's ignorance. And he could benefit from passing base population numbers. How they're changing. How many do what jobs. How sophisticated flight support is. "'And how would they find out?' Ingrid asked. "'I would think the easiest way would be to make friends with a French worker "'who was vetted and cleared to work on base, "'and he or she could gather any information that might be valuable, "'or he could court an American close to the general. "'I don't think that's possible,' Ingrid said. "'Villard seems sincere, and Alice seems loyal.' Do you think this guy is attracted to a spinster American journalist who's not too successful at that, Oliver said. I don't believe Antoine would do that, Ingrid said. But wooing a general's daughter, that would be a coup. And just the possibility, I guess, is enough to believe that Alice should know for her own good, Ella said, now suspicious even of the way Antoine had been so conveniently available when Alice was injured by a bicycle hit-and-run. "'Is she angry enough at her family to ignore the obvious?' Oliver asked Ingrid. "'I know she feels the disregard for her from her father. "'I think her dislike for the general "'probably clouds her judgment of the motivations of all humans,' "'Miles answered. "'That's probably true,' Ingrid said. Well, we should tell her,' Miles said. "'I don't like her well enough to be involved,' Oliver said. "'Miles looked to Ingrid.' "'Would you do it, Ingrid?' "'I haven't connected with her well enough to be listened to recently. "'No one else has your trust,' Miles said. "'Ingrid shook her head in indecision. "'And it should be a woman,' Miles added. "'Ingrid nodded slowly in thoughtful agreement. "'It's a time in human existence when women could not trust men, "'That was for sure. "'And Alice was a friend.' and Ingrid felt on that basis alone she should tell the truth about a war criminal, especially if Alice were in love with him. The next day at mid-morning, when there would be fewer customers, Ingrid asked to meet Alice for coffee at the canteen near the main gate. They sat on the lawn, at an outdoor table for two, under a red-and-white striped umbrella. After pleasantries, Alice asked what was up. Ingrid expressed that She, Oliver, and Miles, had discovered information that they agreed she should know about. "'Why all the secrecy?' Alice asked. "'It's about Antoine, Alice.' Alice smiled. "'Oh, I know. I know all about that. "'What? He's political. "'But he's not anti-American, Ingrid. "'He's just strongly French.' "'It could be more than that,' Ingrid said. "'He's running for office.' as a member of the Communist Party. Well, everyone believes that. I wish he wouldn't run as a communist. Less than 20% of the public thinks there's any value to communist leadership. But it's more than that, Alice. Antoine was in the police. I don't know what that is, she replied hesitantly. Ingrid believed her. Americans on the base knew few truths about the French in the World War II conflict. Mélisse was a paramilitary group that rounded up Jews and undesirables and members of the resistance for the Vichy government for deportation, Ingrid said. The Vichy government was French? A government that collaborated and was supported by the Germans during the occupation. So it was a political group. The Mélisse is believed to have committed summary executions and assassinations. "'Well, Antoine was never involved,' Alice said. "'Why do you think he went to Argentina?' "'He went there to work to support his family. "'There were no jobs during the war.' "'He may have gone there to avoid prosecution for war crimes after the liberation,' Ingrid said. "'After liberation, many of the police were tried and summarily executed for their crimes. "'He escaped.' "'That's not true, Ingrid.' Antoine is French to the core. He's devout Catholic. He's a kind and generous man. Well, we thought you should know. It's a history Antoine will carry with him for the rest of his life. We didn't want it to affect you. Why do you dislike him? We don't dislike him. We don't know him. Why do you lie, then? I'm not lying. I would never have thought it of you. You're the best Jewish person I've ever known. I care for you, Alice. We all do. Alice gripped the edge of the table with white knuckles as she stood. I'm living with the family now, Ingrid. Antoine's divorced sister has moved into the servant's house, and I'm living with the family, working for Antoine in his office, helping with his garden. I can't like you after this. Do you see your family?" I don't want to, and I probably never will. They have no caring for me. Is Antoine interested in the base operations? Ingrid asked. Alice clasped her hands to hide the trembling. He's not a spy, Ingrid. Really, I don't ever want to see you again. Please, Alice, wash those nasty thoughts from your mind. Alice's hands were balled into fists, her face flushed. You'll never have what I have, Ingrid. Love. And you're jealous. Have you quit the paper? That's none of your goddamn business. But yes, I'm submitting elsewhere. Ingrid stood. I'm sorry, Alice. I am so disappointed in you, Alice said, as she turned her back and walked briskly away. And I don't want to ever read your book. A month later, Alice talked to Antoine when they were alone working in the greenhouse. "'embedding Lombardi poplar tree seedlings "'in fortitude soil trays to take root. "'She told him of her meeting with Ingrid. Were you in the Melise? she asked. "'He sighed suddenly, looking tired, and shook his head no. It, "'It makes no difference to me,' Alice continued. "'I don't really know exactly what the Melise were.' "'I've been accused, Alice. "'Was that why you went to Argentina?' It was a complicated time. Did you collaborate with the Germans? Not in the way Americans believe. Not many Americans here are my friends anymore, so there's no danger, Alice said. Antoine took both her hands and led her to a bench near the door. He turned to be able to look into her eyes as he spoke. I knew Darnay and Laval personally in the 30s. And during the war, I did support General Pétain and the Fichy government, believing it was the only possible way to keep a free France. Many of us believed Germany would win, and we were determined to preserve France governed as a peaceful socialist state. I was falsely accused of close association with Darnam because of our previous association and youth, but I was never involved in murder or assassination. I did believe that deportation of Jews and undesirables by the Vichy regime was to support the war effort. I thought the Jews were relocated. The existence of the concentration camps was hidden from most of us until liberation exposed the truth. After liberation, those thought to be associated with the police were arrested and many set for trial. Some were summarily executed. Revenge was rampant. I did have connections to the escape routes and I left. It was a miserable time for me, and I returned to home as soon as I felt safe. Alice imagined the suffering of the Villard family and the sorrow welled up inside her. Any flecks of doubt that remained about Antoine were completely displaced by empathy. She took his hand again and looked deeply into his eyes. Chautame, she said, her gaze lost in the depth of his affectionate stare. He embraced her, "'My share," he said. "'Alice didn't think about Antoine and the Melise "'until she was in the boulangerie "'buying baguettes and tarts the next week. "'The owner exchanged the proper change "'as an old woman walked in, "'recognized Alice, and spat angry words at her. "'Alice looked back at the owner, "'whose eyes were saturated with hatred. "'The old woman waited behind Alice.' Alice looked into the wrinkled face of the owner's brown, bland eyes with dilated pupils. "'Thank you,' Alice said. "'It is no good that you live with that man,' the owner said with a heavy accent of peasant French to her English. "'He is murderer of my husband. My brother saw him,' the old woman almost shouted in French. "'That can't be true,' Alice replied in French. "'She tells the truth.' The old woman behind her said, Many of us know he placed noose around neck of Franklin when two Nazis hoist him up to hang from Lampo. Antoine Villard is a good man, Alice said. The woman owner took the packet she had wrapped for Alice and handed it to the old woman. This is for you now, she said to the old woman, who bowed her head in thanks. And my money? Alice asked. The owner slammed a few coins on the counter. "'Do not return,' she said. "'Why now, after more than a year?' "'Now you live with Melisse.' "'Offended, Alice circled past the old woman to go out the door. "'The same night, Alice told Antoine about her encounter. "'They lie,' he said. "'But they both claim to know you placed a noose around a man's neck. "'You can't believe them. It's been twenty years.' You said you were not involved in the killing of the resistance fighters, but you supported Vichy. He took her by the shoulders and stared her in the eyes. You must believe me. Why did you go to Argentina? He let go of her. To avoid arrest as a collaborator. I am not a killer, Alice. Alice lay alone that night on her bed. He did not come to her. She passed the hours wondering where the truth hid. Doubt had invaded her, and she wondered if she would ever consider his proposals of marriage again. At the next lesson, Alice confronted Madame Levine about the photos. Madame left for an upstairs room and returned with a stack of five folders. She opened the third and showed a photo of a man hanging from a lamp pole and two men not in uniform standing at the foot of the ladder propped against the pole. A few feet away was an officer with a military cap that shadowed part of his face. Madame pointed to the image. That is him in the uniform of Mélisse, is it not? His face is dark. It's not Antoine, Alice said. Many have identified him from this photograph. I don't believe it. Madame slipped two other photos from the folder. This is at a parade in Vichy. "'Both Chauvelards standing in uniform, reviewing the troops. "'Alice had no doubt now. "'This is not killing. "'Everyone knows he was police, but he denies murder, "'and this is not evidence. "'It is hard to prove murder this late after the happening,' "'Madame Levine admitted. "'Alice left Madame before the lesson was over "'and drove directly to Antoine.' I'm so sorry, she gushed. I should never have doubted. Please forgive me. After a long pause where Antoine seemed to iron out his thoughts and feelings, he kissed Alice on both cheeks. They were reunited. That was the end of Episode 3 of Tour of Duty by William H. Coles. To continue, download Episode 4.